You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. The organization Smart Growth America puts out annually, I believe it's annually, I don't know, I'll be corrected here in a second, uh, a report called Dangerous by Design. It's a fantastic report. Uh, the latest version is out now. I've got one of the principal authors, uh, Beth Osborne with Transportation for America, here to chat about this report. You've, you've heard Beth before on this podcast a number of times. Beth, welcome back to the Strong Downs Podcast. Thanks for having me back. Is this an annual thing? You do? I, I know this is not the first one of these reports, although this one, I think, takes it to a new art form. You're nodding. This is something you guys do every year. <laughs> no, there's a reason for the confusion. Okay. Uh, the first Dangerous by Design we did in 2009, and we've done it every other year since then, except for this year. We released one last year, and... The data that we use to analyze is always so far behind. We couldn't talk much about the 2020 data last year. That's what everyone wanted to talk about. So this has been one year after the release of last one. At this point, we'll probably go back to every two years. But 2020 was too important to wait another year to discuss. So we wanted to dive right in. I think there's a a sense amongst the general public And if not amongst the general public, I think certainly amongst engineers and technical people who deal with this, that things they are doing, things we are doing as a society are making things safer. We've got all these safety enhancements. We we now require seatbelts. We have gotten really strict about drunken driving laws. We've got airbags in vehicles. We've got better engineering, better engineering of roads, better engineering of streets, we're spending a lot of money on safety. We're doing, you know, quote unquote, improvements all the time to make things safer. This all suggests that fatalities should be going down. What's actually happening? It's going in the opposite direction. And I, I, I want to just start with that juxtaposition because I, I think the default assumption among most people is that we spent so much time and energy on making things safer, but that's not what's going on, right? No, it's not what's going on. And and I think that one of the the points that we make in this report, really the purpose for this report, is to dig into one of the most dangerous assumptions we have made in the United States, which is the notion that when when driving increases, yeah, fatalities increase. It's the cost of doing business. But when driving decreases, fatalities would decrease with it. There's a certain amount of fatalities that are inevitable approach that we would never verbalize, but was always there in our reliance on a a fatality rate and the focus on the fatality rate instead of the raw numbers. What 2020 showed us is that's not true. It might be true within a very slim margin of error, but when you look at a major drop in uh, driving, like in 2020, when it went down 13, 14%, What we do is we open up our roadways to free flow conditions and people can drive the the speed that they are most comfortable driving. And our roadways are built so wide, they're built to be highways. 
that people drive the highway speed as as is expected by the designs we put in place. So my hope is by by blowing up that assumption that fatalities and driving are tied together, that maybe we can blow up some other dangerous assumptions as well. Mm. I want to highlight a couple of the stats here uh, because driving did go down significantly in 2020. In your report, you say there's a 4.7% increase in 2020 in pedestrian fatalities. I think if you had taken you know, engineer Chuck back in the 1990s and said, we're going to have this incident where driving goes way down, what will happen with fatalities? I would have said as an engineer, well, all the data, all the theories, all the stuff we have suggests that fatalities should also go down because fatalities are a function of how much people are driving. Driving went way down and fatalities went up. You, you, you report 18 people a day were struck and killed in 2020. Beth, this, this doesn't seem like an attrition rate that we should just be blasé about. How do we get to the point where 18 people are being killed a day and it's not the, the, the front of every newscast. That's a really good question. I think that people feel like they're in control of their driving and travel experience. Uh, that's a facade. That's not true. They are not in control and they cannot keep themselves safe. I think the other thing is we spent so much time blaming the, the, the people in the system that that reemphasizes it. Oh, The crashes are because people are misbehaving. Well, I won't misbehave and therefore I will be fine. There are things that we can do to highlight where we're all being taken advantage of. It's this danger to pedestrians wasn't just to pedestrians. The fatalities of people inside vehicles went up too. It got more dangerous for everyone. And so much of the design that creates danger for the pedestrian is setting the driver up. We set the driver up to not be able to see conflicts when they inevitably make a mistake because the design is created in a way where mistakes will be more frequent. Those mistakes will also be more deadly. High speed travel in a high conflict zone means mistakes are common and more deadly. Full stop. The problem is that what we do by focusing on the the user is we just put all the blame on them. So what we need to tell the drivers is you're being set up. We're creating a system where we know you'll make a mistake and that mistake will kill someone. And then we're going to blame you for it. The thing is people kind of know on uh, a a certain level that that's the case. And and I find it in uh, a term that we all use very regularly, which is speed trap. The speed trap is where the design tells you it's okay to go fast and the speed limit says it's not. It's a trick. We all know that it's played on us across the country. So we all know everybody in the country that drives knows that the design and the behavior wanted are not connected. So we just need to connect that dot to the danger as well. There's a certain group of people, uh, and I'm going to point to Twitter who jump down people's throats when they use the word accident. I'm not one of those people. I know the word accident is part of the American lexicon. And and when my parents use that word, I don't scream at them. It's a crash. It's not an accident. But but I, I do think that accident 
and crash juxtapose what you're suggesting here. Because I think most of us, you know, you use the word mistake. I, I know what you mean, but but I I, I want to connect that to the common language of accident because oftentimes when we think of people making a mistake driving, we think of people who have chosen to drive drunk or chosen to drive at really high speeds or chosen to do something that is obviously antisocial, obviously is, is very dangerous to everyone. But most of these mistakes are what? They, they, they almost are accidents, are they, are they not? Absolutely correct. And, and I, I share your trepidation in utilizing that term accident, but it is so often that case when you are told by the design and the speed limit that it is perfectly acceptable to go 50 miles per hour in a conflict rich zone. I mean, the driver is just following directions. But when you're going that fast, your field of vision shrinks your time to respond to potential conflict shrinks. And if you don't stop, the consequences are deadly. So basically the message you're being told is go fast, but stop on a dime. Well, inevitably you're gonna choose the wrong one because those two things are in direct opposition to one another. You're being set up as a driver and your failure will be blamed on you, not the fact that you've been fed dangerous directions that will inevitably lead to, to turning in the wrong direction or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The, the accident is in the decision that the driver made in the chaos of the moment. The crash comes from the design that was created to cultivate that mistake in that accident. Mm -hmm. The framing of this entire report, Dangerous by Design, is, is very, in some sense, provocative. It's right on uh, to me on message. It, it describes clearly what's going on, but let me reword it a little bit and have you react to this. You know, dangerous by design, I, I think you could say as easily designed to be dangerous. You have this amazing image and we're going to run this on the Strongtown's website as a separate post because it's so good where you have the typical arterial roadway design and you go through and you lay out the different components. Can we get into that a little bit? Because I, I think people listening to this, when we say things like designed to be dangerous or dangerous by design, maybe don't know exactly what we mean by that. Humans are autonomous. You have, you have the ability to drive slower, to drive whatever, but, but, but the road design actually does something dangerous. Can, can we talk a little bit about that? I, I don't know if you've got the diagram in front of you, but you- I got it right, right up here where it's safe. Okay, you <laughs> that's the best place for it. <laughs> you've got this street in Memphis, this street I'm familiar with, one of the cities that has the highest pedestrian death total uh, every year, year after year after year. What's going on on this six lane street through the middle of town that makes it dangerous just inherently by its design? Yeah, and I'm just going to say this road is nowhere near the most dangerous that oh. I've seen. It's not even close. Right. No. <laughs> yes. I'm going to point out some things in the image that are dangerous and some things that actually protect it from being more dangerous. So first off, it's just wide. And you know, 
when we as humans see a wide open, very straight roadway with few interruptions, that is called a highway. That feels like an interstate. That feels like you should be able to go fast. And even if it it has a posted speed of something absurd for that design, like 25 miles per hour, no one's going to naturally do that because when you see something wide open, straight, and, and, and with no interruption, well, that's a racetrack and we drive accordingly. But there are other things along the way, um, just visual cues to help the driver figure out where they should be looking don't exist. Like the crosswalks, if they're there, they're faded. In many cases, they aren't there at all. The intersecting streets often lack crosswalks or signals um, because the deal is if we, if we put a signal up, we will interfere with the speed of the vehicles. But as a driver, if you're not stopping regularly, you're not knowing there are crossings and things to look for. There's no cue to say, oh, there could be something coming from the side. There are also numerous other things along the way because there's so much development. There are tons of driveways into parking lots. None of those are going to be signalized. Um, and something else that I find just ubiquitous across the United States are those very wide turns. And I mean, the slip lane is the worst of them all, um, where the, the turn is wide so you don't have to slow down when you turn, but then there's a crosswalk in the middle of it. So again, hey, driver, don't slow down, speed on through but stop on a dime if there's someone in, uh, in the crosswalk. And what this invites from the perspective of the pedestrian is something that we will then attribute as dangerous behavior as well. When there's a half a mile between crossings, and on this stretch, they have as much as uh, uh, 0.4 miles with no crossing, well, you're not going to walk 10 minutes out of your way to cross the street, especially if, as is often the case, the lighting's better in the middle than it is at the crosswalks. Uh, you might feel you have a better field of vision to cross in the middle of the street. And again, you're not going to walk 10 minutes, 15 minutes out of your way. It's fascinating to see the difference. And you get into this in your book about the approach of engineers. If you have a 90 second delay at a uh, uh, an intersection. Oh, completely a, unacceptable. Right? Faster. <laughs> Millions of dollars need to be brought to bear to fix this. But if a pedestrian, if an elderly pedestrian with a walker has to walk 20 minutes out of their way to cross the street, we don't know, we don't care, we don't count, we don't look. And that is really, really stark. So these design cues really, again, set up the driver. Think about when you're driving on these roads and the, you notice that the speed limit keeps changing, but the design's the same. It's very confusing. Again, citing you in your book, you talk about how the, the, the engineers know how to make things safe at high speed, theoretically, but they don't recognize that there are design changes you can make to slow things down. And yeah, so we basically are putting a, a highway design in a one-sized-fits-all approach on every one of our major streets across the United States, regardless of, of context, regardless of usage, regardless of geography, regardless of economy. When you talk about the the elderly man having to walk 20 minutes out of their way to cross the street as, as a design standard, 
I want to just drill down on that for a second because we're visualizing. I think when if people, some people visualize that in their head, they're thinking about a suburban place with uh, a Walmart and uh, you know frontage roads and all this. We actually see this regularly in urban areas, in urban neighborhoods, in places where people are expected to to walk. There's a suburban aspect to this problem, but we're not talking about this being an exclusive suburban type of issue, right? Oh, we see it everywhere. We see it in rural areas as well. Rural areas, which we don't get as much into in this report, but (laughs) I I really remember being in a rural area in Florida and a couple whose son was killed while walking on the shoulder of a rural highway because the driver lost control and barreled into him, talking about how tired they are of uh, leaders pretending like rural Americans don't walk and that rural Americans actually walk farther than urban Americans because they're used to everything being farther away. But we see this in all contexts. Absolutely. And I think to some extent, we need to remember that suburban doesn't actually mean anything. Uh, it's, it's a made up term. It's, it's meaning less and less, certainly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, it, it is. Yeah. But the census doesn't recognize a concept of suburban. There's urban and there's rural and that's it. And what we mean by suburban is spread out land uses and wide roads. But we have spread out land uses and wide roads in, you know, in the middle of Washington, D.C. Yeah, I think we really need to look at that design and what we mean by what we say. And when we see those long stretches without any crossing, we shouldn't be surprised when people run across the road. What drives me nuts is when there's coverage that says, you know, the pedestrian was outside the sidewalk. Nine times out of 10, if I go look at the site, I find there are no crosswalks anywhere. They they were outside of the non-existent crosswalk. And the other thing, of course, is most pedestrians struck and killed are in a crosswalk. Yeah. You you just jogged this memory I had of arguing with an engineer over a crosswalk on a similar type of thing. And, and, the feedback I got was, well, if we put a crosswalk there, it will just encourage people to walk, right? It will encourage them to cross. And it's not safe for them to cross, so we shouldn't encourage that behavior. You have an astounding stat in here. It's a stat that I've seen in other contexts, but I, I like, you know, I appreciate the way you present it here. 60% of all 2020 deaths occurred on, and you say a non-interstate arterial highway, like this one in Memphis. This is the Strode problem. We're seeing deaths happen disproportionately on these types of of streets, of roads, of Strodes, uh, where you have the fast moving traffic combined with the complexity. What should the takeaway be for us when we can have a stat that, you know, this, this, this massive problem, 18 people a day being killed on what is essentially a small part of our overall transportation network. I've decided to take it as actually a call to action and good news. So that 60% stat is for all non-interstate arterials. But if you uh, focus in on just the urban ones, it's, it's actually higher. It's over 70%. So if in urban areas, we could tackle... Over 70% of the fatalities, of the pedestrian fatalities, by addressing 15% of the lane miles, we could turn things around in five years. I mean, this becomes 
an incredibly doable, manageable problem. I was, I was also gobsmacked by that. But all of a sudden, it shows us this is so doable. There's no excuse. Let's just focus like a laser for the next five years on these roadways and redesigning them. And I could be doing dangerous by design, you know, let's say two years after that, saying that the U.S. is an international success story, a complete turnaround. So it's a tragedy that this design is so ubiquitous across the country, but it's confined and we can fix it. I look at it that way too. And, and as I talk to communities, it, it is a, a strode problem. I think the thing that's most frustrating about it to me is that from an engineering standpoint, there seems to be no basis to build a strode. You, you don't actually move vehicles quickly in this environment. And so the trade-off to me seems to be an absurd one. High death rates, lower tax base for poor traffic flow. Why don't we have a national program to eliminate strokes? One of the clear takeaways from your report is that, you know, this is a a universal problem we need to deal with. Yeah. And I think we are going to have to state things very clearly for the policymakers and for the public. We have clear choices and there is a possibility that there are people across the country in certain communities that when faced with the choice between the seeming convenience of possibly being able to move faster in certain circumstances is more important than improving safety. Okay, then everyone has to say it. It has to be written down. It has to be published. And you have to say, we are willing to give up X number of lives a year in order to preserve our perceived convenience. Fine, that, that, is, that is a policy position that we could choose to take, but we have to say it and we can't hide from it anymore. I, I do think also, uh, and you've really led the way in this saying, it has to be slow or fast. There, there are only two choices. If you're gonna go fast, everything has to be separated. No development, no driveways, no cross streets, regulated uh, entrances and exits with big turn lane or uh, merge lanes, no pedestrians, no, no conflict, big separation between people going in opposite directions. That is how we do speed safely. And we do it in, on every interstate in the country. Our interstates are very safe. Our separated highways are very safe. If you don't wanna do that, traffic is slow. There is no third option. The tooth fairy will not give you another choice. That is it pick. And I think we need to be very clear across the country that if you try to choose something in between, you are choosing bad travel and danger. And that's just, it's as simple as that. And I think if we make things simple, we will make decisions easier. Yeah. I feel this like fluttering in my heart when you talk, because there are times when, you know, you can feel very isolated and alone saying these things because there's a huge profession of people who do not listen to this. I am so grateful for you, for Transportation for America, for Smart Growth America, for the work that you're doing and the way that you're saying this. I want to read a quote from here because I literally, and this is going to sound dumb, but I literally like teared up a little bit because I'm like, I have been fighting this reckless driver narrative for so long. And to have other people stating this as clearly as you stated here. So uh, this is in a, in a, a section about congestion and about traffic fatalities. You say seeing 
driving go down and deaths go up should call into question the long-held conventional wisdom among policymakers and transportation professionals that traffic fatalities are inextricably linked to the amount of driving. During the large decrease in driving during COVID, congestion evaporated, speeds increased dramatically, and more people were killed. It was incredibly ironic. And then you bold this. God bless you for doing this. Congestion, something transportation agencies spend billions to eliminate, seems to have been slowing traffic and reducing deadly crashes. Thank you, Beth. Thank you so much. We, can you please just talk about this and elaborate on it? Because to me, it seems a self-evident, obvious point that I don't hear transportation safety officials talking about at all, let alone engineers and other practitioners. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> we we design our roads for speed, and the one intervention that slows that speed down is congestion. So it turns out congestion has been an unintentional safety intervention for decades and decades. It's one of the reasons when congestion goes or when traffic goes down, we don't see a, a dip in fatalities is because we've overbuilt those roads. Back in the days when there was less driving, uh, maybe because the population was lower, maybe because our uh, communities weren't so spread out or whatever the reasons, those roads were narrowed. But with every year, we are expanding and overbuilding them more and more. So when the traffic evaporates, you've got this massive highway through towns um, that allows people to go fast. You know, before COVID, most fatalities were outside of peak times. We knew it then. We knew when the speeds were high. That's when the mistakes would happen. That's when the mistakes would be deadly. Well, now we don't have peak times. So that should have been, again, just like you said, apparent, predictable, obvious, planned. We definitely want to call it out. There are two things that stick with me and make me so angry in this, this narrative of the reckless driver or the reckless pedestrian. One is, this is an area where there's almost no oversight. We make predictions, we build things, we never look back. If we look back, we can make more predictions. If, if we had to look back and see if we got what we wanted, we would be able, we'd be able to see just what you said, Chuck. We don't get the traffic results that we plan for. We just absolutely refuse to have any oversight. And that is the fault of our politicians who are super happy to join hands and spend money together, but not look at what they're getting for the taxpayer. The second thing is this notion of we, we are a standout in the world amongst our peer countries in terms of our fatalities and our danger on our roadways. And by standout, you don't mean we're nailing it. We're doing a great job. You mean- We're doing a great job killing people. We're a real standout in danger. We stand out in the sense that we are multiple uh, degrees worse. We are many standard deviations worse than other countries. There was an international study uh, that looked at basically the developed countries that said over COVID, almost every one of our peers had a reduction in fatalities. But putting the U.S. and our numbers into the mix reduced their benefits by half because we are so dangerous in comparison to the rest of the developed world. So, look, if they're doing so much better, the question should be, what makes us different? And let me tell you, what makes us different is not the existence of the iPhone. The iPhone, apparently safety advocates are not aware, <laughs> 
exists outside of the United States. Yeah, I've been to I've been to Paris. People were walking around with iPhones. Yeah. Yeah. Distraction exists across the world. We're all humans. Alcohol. I know this is going to blow people's minds. <laughs> exists outside the United States. There's some very good alcohol to be had in other places. Actually, and yeah. people uh, drink and walk and drink and drive in other parts of the world, and they have to manage that too. There's also just it, it turns out there are reckless people in other parts of the country that may you know push the speed too high or behave in a way that is not that's simply not safe in all kinds of ways. They also over COVID suffered from COVID because it was a worldwide pandemic. We are not alone in any of these things. Where we stand alone is the design of our roadways. That is where we are different. So if you're looking for where where we are different, you can then identify how we can change to get better results like them. Instead, we are obsessing over where we're the exact same as everybody else. They have distracted driving. They just don't have massive deaths because of distracted driving. They have alcohol. They don't just don't have massive deaths because of alcohol. That's because everyone moves slower because they design their roadways in high conflict areas for slow traffic. They make it super uncomfortable to go fast because the road is narrow and there's lots of points where you have to stop. We don't have to tell people that they can't go 60 miles per hour while they're parking. We don't feel safe doing that. We don't have to tell people you can't go 60 miles per hour through an alley. You feel constrained. We can do this. We just have to recognize that it is a policy decision and uh, and I think, you know, people like you and I and our organizations are going to have to put this in the face of political leadership because it's up to them to determine if they really want to put their money towards professions and agencies that refuse to measure their own performance and that are not only unconcerned by these results, are willing to double down on the actions that got us these results. One of the bits of feedback that I get from engineers when we talk about pedestrian deaths going up, which by the way, I know you use the word pedestrian. I, I just used it. You had a little disclaimer thing or discussion in the, in the margins about everybody who's included in that. I, I have tried to start to use the word just humans or people. I feel like pedestrians, and I, I know you're, we're dealing with technical terms here, but I often feel like when we're talking to regular people, pedestrians almost dehumanizes people and makes it the equivalent of an automobile. Certainly engineers treat a a pedestrian and an automobile as equivalent transportation units, or or, I mean, at at best, right? And there's a very, there's a difference there. But you in this report talk about the correlation between walking and the number of people being killed. And, And one of the things that I get from the engineering profession is, well, more, more pedestrians are being killed now because more people are walking. Walking is a more popular activity. Gosh darn, these millennials like to walk. They're walking around with iPhones like zombies. It's, you know, uh, it, it's all about the number of pedestrians now, not a function of the, the dangerous design. And I, I want to highlight something in your report. You have a whole section here that conclusively shows, and I, I, it's kind of sad that we even need to conclusively show this, but you show that the quote is more walking doesn't have to result in more deaths. I'm going to actually say it a different way. The more people walk, the safer things become. Talk a little bit about that insight and I think the implications of it 
in terms of how we design places. Yeah, look, I'm I'm all for uh, beating up on millennials as a Gen Xer. I have <laughs> to find an excuse to do that, but I can't do it here. It is true. Well, first off, before COVID, unfortunately, people weren't walking more. In some isolated places, they were, but we saw rising deaths over the last decade, and there was no increase in actual walking. That was unfortunate. But we, we worked with streetlight data to see uh, the difference in walking rates between 2019 and actually the, the five years before 2020 and compare it to 2020. And walking increased across the board. Every community that we looked at didn't matter geography, weather, uh, demographics, walking increased by large amounts absolutely everywhere in the United States. But the safety results were not the same. Areas where people tended to walk to work in bigger numbers before COVID did not see big increases in crashes and fatalities with pedestrians. For an area to invite people to walk to work, it has to be truly friendly to people walking and rolling. You know, to decide to walk to work regularly, you're going to have uh, land uses where jobs are closer to home and lots of destinations in between. You're going to have wide sidewalks, things like that. Those areas saw big increases in walking and either saw decreases in fatalities or very small increases. Areas that did not have a lot of people uh, walking to work before the pandemic also saw, saw massive increases in people walking and rolling, but they saw big increases in deadly crashes. So again, let's look for the differentiator. What was a differentiator was not more people walking and rolling. It was more people being hit in places where walking and rolling is dangerous. You have this map and I know this data, but the way you presented this report is, is really, really striking. It's a map of the most dangerous places to walk in the U.S. And on the following page, you have uh, states highlighted, and it is essentially a map of the southern part of the United States. All of these cities are below. Do we still use the term Mason-Dixon line? I don't even know where that is. <laughs> I just know it's in the middle somewhere, um, but they are all southern. Now, th this is not a... Because I'm a I'm a good Yankee, right? I'm from Minnesota, so I'm part of the North. This is not a North-South thing in terms of culture. I'll, I'll cast some shade on my people here. There's a lot of Minnesota smugness sometimes. You know, we're most of us are above average, is how we talk about it. And so, of course, we're not getting hit on the streets because we're not dumb. You know, like those people in the, in the Southern states who are you know a little different. Um, this is a function of something else. Can you talk about that something else? Because this is, to me, a, a, a profound set of insights that the data just screams at. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Now, before I get into the folks that ranked poorly, I want to point out that there is not one place in the United States that has any bragging rights at all. To be at the, the safest community in the most dangerous country in the world is still embarrassing. You're the cleanest shirt in a dirty hamper. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. All of our safety results in every community is terrible, is embarrassing. If you see anybody say 
that they get comfort for dropping in the rankings or for being at the bottom of the list while getting more dangerous. That's the reason we have a safety problem in the country. You have just identified it beautifully. So let me just remind everybody, whether you're highlighted orange or not, you stink in this area. We all got to do better. So there, we'll we'll start there. I am a Southern person. Where where are you from? I grew up in New Orleans. No joke. There have been people who would argue that New Orleans is kind of different. We would be one of those who argue that New Orleans is different from absolutely every place. Uh, Um, But, you know, I grew up in the South. I went to school in Baton Rouge. One of the reasons that, uh, you know, I got involved in transportation was my experience in Baton Rouge needing to get a job and not being able to find a job that that I could get to outside of a car, but without a job, not having the money to buy a car. And uh, that was a real wake up call to me that we design our worlds that you have to pay a cover charge to enter the economy. And what a stupid idea that is. What an absolutely wasteful, uh, inefficient system that is. What you really see in this map is which areas did uh, uh, the bulk of their developing before World War II and which did the bulk of their developing after World War II. You know, look, I I grew up having everybody talk about once air conditioning became ubiquitous, people got real excited about moving to the South. And we started seeing big trends of people moving down South and and the economy really started to boom. Most Southern cities grew up in that era, which was the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. That also happened to be the highway era. That's what you're seeing here. If you look at the population growth in any city in this area, it happened during or, or, you know, deep into the highway era. And that's why they're dangerous. If you go up north, a lot of those areas were built in, in the 19th century, in the very early 20th century before the car. So they had a base of operations that was human scale. You're essentially suggesting that modern engineering, modern traffic engineering, this is correlated with with that. Absolutely. When we were accommodating all the new people moving in, it was in, you know, the post-interstate era when we were building highways absolutely everywhere. And look, it wasn't just the highway engineers. It was the, the land use planning that put all the houses far away from absolutely every single thing that a human being would need, which then necessitated driving more, which created the congestion, which gave the highway engineer the excuse to go big because of the demand. So it all plays into itself. But the point is, they all grew up in an era where those forces were at work, and we see the most deadly results in the areas where that was the case. When I look at this list, I actually see a lot of, to what what I would call second-generation Expansion. So, so the places uh, you, you, you've got, you know, Daytona Beach, Albuquerque, Tampa, St. Pete. The one that is interesting to me is Charleston. Is one, two, three, four, five, fifth most deadly on the list. When you think of Charleston, I think we think of the iconic core of Charleston, which is this almost museum piece in its urban design and gorgeousness. That's not where the deaths are happening. They're happening in the miles of junk, arterial strode, you know, uh, ubiquity that surrounds that beautiful core. And yeah, and that all happened 
in those decades immediately after World War II. We've taken the best practices of the engineering profession, applied them to these places, and it's killing people. Yeah. And, and what's unfortunate is what the engineering profession did in the 1950s was nothing short of brilliant. They had to invent from scratch a totally new system of uh, designing something we never designed before, an interstate system. And they did. And look, we screwed up along the way. We built entrances to the, the highways with not enough of a merge lane and created points of conflict that resulted in crashes and backups. And we came back in and retrofitted and created much more space for merging. We learned along the way, but creating something that big across a country this big so quickly is nothing short of remarkable. The mistake was in taking that design and applying it to an in-community arterial. What's ironic is the reason we built the interstate system is we wanted to move people in vehicles faster. And it was it was just stupid to suggest we would do that at grade. No, we had to invent the interstates because we knew you would never move people at 50 miles per hour in a community. That's dangerous. So we created an interstate system and then we took that design and did exactly what we said we shouldn't do and put it in the communities. <laughs> I mean, we could have just done from that from the start and not yeah. built the interstates. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the end result has been a misapplied uh, theory of safety. By the way, we began developing that theory was absurd at the start, right? We, we looked at, if, if we would have said the way we make our streets, you know, we're, we're standing here in, in 1945, we're going to do this big thing across the entire nation. The way we will make our streets, which are generally really safe today, for the most part, the way we're going to make them safe is uh, to make them into highways. People would have gone nuts. Like that, that would have been an absurd thing. So what we did is we went out and built highways. And then we took that knowledge and said, now we're going to apply that to the street. It is a completely backward way of, of thinking about safety. When you have that list of uh, the dirtiest shirts uh, in, in, in the dirty laundry, um, the cleanest shirts in the dirty laundry, uh, I, I noted that the list of, I think you had 10 in there, like four or five of them were Pennsylvania. Uh, which has a lot of these really kind of small towns where you're forced to drive really slow in them. I don't want to make this like a, a North-South thing because it's, it's not a cultural thing at all. It is really a function of when you, when you built, I, I found that just really, well, really compelling. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting also is there were two communities on that list that are new Durham, Chapel Hill. Yeah. But that those are university towns, very much designed and and take pride in being quaint. In those college towns, particularly, you have a culture of walking and a culture of biking that even when the design is dangerous, it somewhat compensates for it by making drivers be more alert for the, for the random pedestrian, because they're not as random there. They're more expected, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's easier to share the road with something you expect to see. Yes. But then I, Provo serves mm -hmm. a little attention to the current congressman of, uh, for that area, who is the former mayor, 
he really paid attention to roadway design and its impact on safety. One of his main streets in Provo, which now hosts, I believe, the BRT, I think it was the same road. I got to have a conversation with him and he was saying that it was listed as one of the most dangerous roads in Utah. So they narrowed it and they gave a lot more space to people walking and biking and transit and took it away from the vehicles and slowed down the traffic. And they did that in a few places. And look at Provo on this list. Again, if you look at where the problems are and you dig in on your most dangerous roads and you don't do just it just a couple of times, that's the other thing we do in this country. And that's that's the federal bipartisan way is we're going to do 98 percent all the bad stuff we've always done. But we're going to claim we're making great change by doing two percent to fix it. That's not what, what he did when he was in power. He set in motion and got some guff for making change to the design that brought down speeds and created space for people walking, biking, and rolling. And look at them on this list. A lot of people who are, are listening to this, I, I almost certainly are people who like to bike and walk. I know that I get to walk to my office. My, my house is close to where I work. And it's a very nice, convenient walk. But that walk is a, a choice that I get to get to make. A, a lot of people, when they think of biking and walking, and certainly I think within the context of the engineering profession, when we think of biking and walking, engineers and professionals tend to think of it as a leisure activity or an optional activity, something that people opt to do. I think this report does a really good job of humanizing the very large percentage of our population for which biking and walking as a transportation option is not a lifestyle activity, but is a necessity. It's something that they have to do to work. It's something they have to do for their daily needs. It's something they have to do to get to get medical care, to get their kids places, to, to, to obtain food, to do all the essentials of life. Can, can you talk about a little bit about that aspect of this and some of the correlations that, that you found that I think are you know, very compelling in terms of how this how this problem is manifesting differently for different people. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's a couple interesting things in this. One is uh, when we looked at the streetlight data, we saw incredible amounts of walking in some of these very dangerous places. It's just on completely separated off-road trails. So it it really shows that uh, in a lot of these states, and I think part of the confusion is they are supporting walking. It's just anywhere near the road or or destinations people might want to reach, it is recreational. So you've got tons of gated communities in Florida where people can walk and beach walks and things like that. But that's not what we are talking about here. That that But that is the engineer saying, here, this is where you can walk to stay out of the way of traffic. There are a large number of people in rural and urban America, you know, the majority of counties with high populations of households with no car at all are in rural America. Not everybody has, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to spend for one vehicle per human over 16 in their household. Um, And so they have to walk uh, to get around. Even if they're going to take transit, they've got to walk to the transit. And sometimes they're incredibly short distances. But since our priority is moving people 
across larger areas at high speed and vehicles, those that are just trying to cross the street to get to the grocery are the ones that, you know, frankly, get in the way in, in the minds of those designing our roadways too often. And what we see that mean is a, a huge increase in danger to certain groups of people. Lower income communities, uh, people in lower income communities are much more likely to be struck and killed while walking. Black people, twice as likely as white people to be struck and killed while walking. Native Americans, three times as likely. Huge exposure. And it's for the very simple reason that Black and Native Americans are much less likely to have access to reliable automobile for every person in their household. And they are also more likely to live in communities where the roadway is designed for the convenience and the use of people coming from outside of their community and going someplace outside of their community. The notion that that roadway has a role, an obligation to take care of the people within that community, is it, it doesn't register at all. And we see it in these results. I'm going to make an anecdotal statement just based on my experience. And, and this, you know, we can look at my little hometown here, but certainly I see this over and over again in cities across the country. When you are in affluent neighborhoods and you're going to do a really horrible design, you're going to go in and widen out the streets and, and put a highway in front of someone's house, make the, tra- make the traffic go really fast through a neighborhood. The affluent people show up and stop the project. They hire lawyers. They use the process. They are they, lawyers. They are lawyers. Exactly. They, 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 they make this thing end, and they're very vocal about doing that. When this happens in a poor neighborhood, th- this, the same result doesn't happen. And I can go around just my city here, and we can just simply take snapshots of the streets. And I will tell you by the snapshot of the street, if it's an affluent or a poor neighborhood. Just by the street design. You don't have to show me any homes. You don't have to show me anything adjacent street. Just show me the street design. One of them is an abusive design. And the other one is an accommodative design. And this is, a, this is an, an anecdotal observation that I make in cities all over the country. Absolutely right. Uh, it's really, it's tragic to see. I've even seen it used against our, uh, the argument to give people greater amenities. Apparently, because we do such a bad job with affordable housing, these communities shouldn't get safer amenities because it will then price them out. Yeah, yeah, right. We can't put in sidewalks and make it nice to live there because then we'll get gentrification, right? That's, uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, shouldn't make people choose between affordability and their lives. Right. Let's finish up here by talking about some of the recommendations. And, and I, I think the first one to me really was deeply meaningful. I'm going to summarize it this way. You, you, you basically indicate that this problem will not be addressed without local leaders. Um, like there's no, there, there's no program in Washington. There's no uh, professional reform thing. There, there, there's nothing that's going to happen sans local leadership that will actually address this. Beth, how important are mayors, city councils, neighborhood leaders, church leaders, you know, pe- people who are concerned about the street in front of their place, in front of their kids' school? H- how important are these people to fixing this problem? They're, they're essential. Uh, you have to 
you have to have people who can stand up for your community and, and put a lot of pressure on those who are frankly facing pressure to do something different. We, we beat up on the engineers a lot, but and all of us who have gone into agencies know that there are tons of engineers there that know that, that this is not right and want to do things differently. But if they do things differently, they have to fight the rules and the standards. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. I have been, I, I can tell you, I've been uh. in 15 different states. And in every case, I have engineers come up and say, look, I tried. It's an eight to 24 month ex- exceptions process to be able to do this. And once I get through the exceptions process, if I do it a second time, I have to go through it all again as if it was never, it never happened. So they're facing pressure, but we can create pressure that makes them go to their leadership and say, look, things are about to blow up over there. They're going to make our lives a living hell if we do not address their needs. So that groundswell of pressure and the ability to develop the data and point to the places that need the most immediate attention to help us focus on those 15% of roadways, that's essential. You need people calling out what's wrong to be able to make a change. So we are going to rely very heavily on them. However, most of the money and the power is in the hands of the states. So we're going to have to get the state legislators in particular, they have a very local connection, very much like the mayors, to be a bridge between those local leaders and the state institutions to ensure that changes are being made within those institutions to be responsive to those locals who are going to create the problem that requires uh, that response. And then hopefully we can filter it back up to the federal level who just couldn't be more incompetent in uh, particularly in Congress in, uh, you know, claiming great success and pouring money into a program that creates all these problems. And I think it's going to be very much up to those local leaders to talk to their federal uh, leaders about how badly the system is working and that this is not a money issue. It's the policy. If you're going to pour money into uh, the things that we need, fine. But pouring money into things that we have to retrofit and fix, that's stupid. Stop it and stop bragging about it. Unfortunately, they don't hear that much, these complaints. There's a huge separation between them. And we need uh, to, to fix that. It does feel a little bit like the conversation around that conversation is shifting. I agree with you. My, my sense is that it doesn't break through or it's not breaking through. And there's a part of me, I mean, Strong Downs does not work. I mean, we have members in Washington, D.C. We don't work on policy. We're not, we don't do lobbying. We're, I'm not on a, you know, a cordial first name basis with, uh, you know, legislative delegations. But when I do interact with people who are part of that group, the conversation seems very divorced from, as you say, you know, the, the people that I talk to at different states and different city councils, people who are, 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 are trying to do things and are very frustrated. I think it's, it's very easy for people outside the system to say, well, it's, it's asphalt lobbyists and it's, uh, you know, all of these bad guys. It, it does seem to me, though, that, uh, you know, you, you, we have a president now who's calling for a gas tax holiday. I, 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 I feel like there is some common knowledge 
within the corridors of power in this country that building highways, building roads, investing in bigger, broader, you know, more violent transportation systems is a path to satisfying the, the demands of your constituents. Do I have the wrong impression? And I, I guess, you know, what should someone uh, who is like me, like not part of that system, what should someone be doing uh, that can productively turn things in a different direction? But your perception is not wrong. This is something that folks in D.C. would not like to hear. But I think that the the trust fund, the fact that when we collect the gas tax, we put the money aside and allow the program to be funded over a five-year period without having to go through the annual budget process is part of the danger. Folks on Capitol Hill know what comes up every year. Your whole term can come and go in one one reauthorization, particularly in the House. Why would you become an expert in something you never have to vote on, you never have to consider? It creates great ignorance in the halls of Congress, both at the member level and the staff level. But the other thing is we never bring the failures to their attention. Uh, and and I, I want to go back to the issue of the mayors being and the county officials being so key here. When you're on Capitol Hill, the only time you hear from mayors and county officials on uh, transportation is when they come and say, yes, increase the funding. You never hear them at the federal level say, our state won't let us retrofit this roadway so it can be a main street and a real economic engine, ever. Those mayors have to start communicating in a much different way. And frankly, I'd love to see them take the same tack that, that my organization has, which is we'd rather see no money than money being spent to undermine our economies. Stop putting money into things that cause damage. And when things go wrong, they should be calling their congressional delegation and saying, you told me this wouldn't happen. Now it's on you to fix it. And those members are going to find out how few levers they have created to do so. We need to drag them into the problem if we want them to be part of the solution. But basically what we give them is an opportunity for a great press release every five or so years, and then they get to opt out of everything and, and ride above it. We can't allow that to happen anymore. And, uh, and I think those of us who aren't in political office can do that too. When, when we get a story written about a big problem, we, we should work with the reporter to make sure they mention how the federal rules aren't set up to help and we should make sure the congressional delegation hears about it. And, and we should drag them into those conversations, make them account for themselves. As soon as they have to feel the pain of the bad decisions, they'll move. They're, they're finely tuned to respond to criticism. They just avoid it completely. And it's preposterous. We're going to put a link uh, to the report uh, as part of this podcast, but I, I want people to go to your website and, and download it. What, what's the best way to get access to this and, and to get more information? I, I know you guys have a, a web broadcast coming up at the end of the month too, that people are going to want to tune into. Where should we send people? Uh, go to smartgrowthamerica.org. It's on the front page. You can sign up for our uh, newsletter as well, which will allow you to see other great things that we're up to. And I have to point out, I can't believe we've come this far and I haven't had the chance to mention that one of my favorite parts of this version is our partners who have <laughs> as a part of this report. Uh, and you have one of them. I believe you have the first one up, which yeah. talking about uh, issues that are 
important, essential, and related to this, but didn't fit into the, the narrative uh, part that we tell and wasn't necessarily the, the core of our expertise. So you have an insert talking about why the engineering profession and procedure leads to these results. And we also have uh, uh, the leader uh, of America Walks, Mike McGinn, talking about how the increasing size of vehicles and the design of vehicles that, frankly, blinds the driver to what's in front of their car or their truck and creates more danger because of where people get struck you know, in their, their, their core and in their head when you're short as I am. And then we have a great piece uh, written by uh, the Fines and Fees, uh, and Fees Justice Coalition that talks about why relying on enforcement is so inherently inequitable and not uh, a good way to change behavior. And finally, the National Association of City Transportation Officials talks about how we can fix it and how this is incredibly fixable. And, and I think it's our partners that really make this report sing. There's a lot of great people working on this issue. And yes, I'm, I'm very proud to have been able to contribute in a small way to, to what is a fantastic uh, piece of work. Beth Osborne, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the work that you do. And, and, and thanks for the way that you've focused on this issue. I know you're going to keep working on this. I hope people go and get the report. I hope they attend your session and let's keep in touch and keep, uh, keep doing what we can, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you too. And, and again, thanks so much for participating in this one. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Everybody take care and be safe. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.